I've been all over the universe with you, Doctor, and Earth in the 19th century is the most alien place I've seen. England, 1887. The secret library of St. John the Beheaded has been robbed. The thief has taken forbidden books which tell of mythical beasts and gateways to other worlds. Only one team can be trusted to solve the crime, Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. As their investigation leads them to the dark underside of Victorian London, Holmes and Watson soon realise that someone else is following the same trail. Someone who has the power to kill with a glance. And they sense a strange, inhuman shape observing them from the shadows. Then they meet the mysterious traveller, known only as the Doctor, the last person alive to read the stolen books. While Benice waits in 19th century India, Ace is trapped on a bizarre alien world, and the Doctor finds himself unwillingly united with England's greatest consulting detective. Thank you, Gareth, and welcome back to the Secret Library of St John the Beheaded for this episode of We're All Stories in the End, a podcast too broad and too deep for the average bookshelf. Impossibly, someone has been stealing books from my lovely secret library, so we're going to get to the bottom of exactly who and how, and we're going to be doing that with the help of Sherlock Holmes and Dr Watson, two characters who, you may think, have no place in Doctor Who. But does it work? Does it work? Where better to start our investigation than with the synopsis of the novel? Jabalabad, 1843. The first doctor has a whisky with a British army officer while Susan is painting, and three strangers, the seventh doctor, Benny and Ace, watch the tranquil scene from a distance. They remark, this is where the adventure began, and the doctor gives Bernice a book to read, The Adventure of the All-Consuming Fire, by Arthur Conan Doyle. 1887. On board the Orient Express, Holmes and Watson are dining with a Colonel Warburton when a second train flags them down. Summoned onto the second train, the detectives meet the Pope and two cardinals who engage Holmes to investigate the theft of some books from a secret library of forbidden knowledge located back in London. They make their way to Hoban and an area known as the St Giles Rookery where they gain access to the secret library of St John the Beheaded. While there, Watson has a brief chat with an odd little man who calls himself the Doctor, while Holmes satisfies himself that the theft is seemingly inexplicable, the library being guarded by two competing street gangs. Returning home from dinner, Holmes and Watson find a caller waiting for them, the Doctor. Unable to read or deduce anything from the Time Lord's appearance, Holmes takes an instant antipathy towards him. They discussed a list given to them by the library's custodian, all of recent visitors. It becomes obvious even to Watson that Holmes is hiding the list from him for a reason. They decide to visit the recent visitors and the doctor accompanies Watson to call upon Mrs Kate Prendersley, but during the meeting she spontaneously combusts. Although technically murder suspects, the police do not detain Watson or the doctor. Meanwhile, Holmes has been to an illegal gathering on Hackney Downs, complete with dogfights, bare-knuckle boxing, and the biggest spectacle is three dogs fighting a three-legged creature called the Giant Rat of Sumatra. Holmes witnesses the two heads of the rival gangs who guard the library and assures himself that these two 'er ne'er-do-wells are utterly serious and unstinting in their duty to safeguard the library's property. After a large breakfast and a convenient plot recap, 
Holmes and Watson are summoned to meet with Mycroft Holmes in the Diogenes Club. Mycroft reveals that the Gentleman's Club is in fact the headquarters of a secret network of international spies who serve Queen Victoria. Mycroft introduces them to fellow member Baron Maupertuis, a man as sinister as he is pallid. Maupertuis makes a quick exit. Using a secret pneumatic railway with the station directly beneath the Diogenes Club, Holmes and Watson race after Maupertuis's horse-drawn cab, which they have discovered was bound for Euston. Arriving mere seconds too late to see where Maupertuis and his hooded companion might have gone, Holmes makes an informed guess and leads Watson into a brothel staffed by children. Upstairs, Maupertuis and his companion are conducting a seance with the infamous Madame Sosostris. Overhearing an unearthly voice communicating with the group, Holmes and Watson are discovered and flee the building pursued by the doorman of the brothel, uh, up until the moment he too bursts into flames. The detectives flag down a passing cab which conveniently contains the Doctor, and they return to the Diogenes Club where Mycroft presents another figure named on Holmes's list, their older brother Sheringford, who is using the Library of St John the Beheaded to research their father's journals, two of which are the stolen books in question. The object of interest was an account by their father, Sigur, of his conversation with the First Doctor about a veil between this world and another, which Holmes deduces that Maupertuis wishes to invade. The Doctor reveals an interloper to their meeting, a strange alien creature made of sticks who is hiding behind the curtain, who reluctantly introduces himself as Kidarch from the planet Riley. Our heroes sail to Port Said, while Watson recounts how the unfolding conversation with Kitarch has led to the group deciding to pursue the fleeing Baron Maupertuis, who is bound for India. In Bombay, they meet Professor Bernice Summerfield, who has been stationed there for some time in order to spy on the activities of Maupertuis and his agents. Her account impresses Holmes. That night in their hotel, the Doctor and Benny are attacked by a winged creature called Araxasi, a demon from Hindu mythology, which overpowers the Time Lord and flies off with him. Watson, Holmes and Bernice travel by train to Jabalabad, where they are entirely coincidentally reunited with Colonel Warburton, who invites them to a feast at the Nizam's palace. During the party, Watson pops off for a wee and is captured by Maupertuis and his huge henchman, Surd. Escaping from Surd, with the help of Benny, Watson returns to his group to find everyone else has been drugged and carried away. Following the servants of Maupertuis, they descend into a vast underground cave where Maupertuis assesses his would-be foes, including Holmes and another man who reveals himself to be none other than Professor Moriarty. Rakshasi are summoned to slaughter the heroes while Maupertuis and his army summon and pass through a dimensional portal leading to the surface of Rylet. Moriarty, who has come to see why his men have been deserting him to join Maupertuis's army, does a quick bit of business, then nips off smartly. Holmes helps the Doctor examine the body of Sird, who died in the fight with the Rakshasi, and discover he was butchered so that small pockets or drawers could be installed in his body, no doubt the means through which the books were stolen from the library. The heroes recreate the chant that Maupertuis used to open the veil, and they cross to the planet Riley. 
Holmes is instantly out of his depth in the alien environment, but Watson is more gung-ho and creeps into the camp of Maupertuis' army. Unfortunately, the camp is swiftly attacked and the army is slaughtered. Maupertuis personally kills his now expendable servant Warburton and is about to execute Watson when the pallid warmonger is shot dead by a young woman called Ace. Watson and Ace set off on a long, arduous and reasonably tiresome journey in pursuit of the missing Doctor, Holmes and Benny. Eventually they chance upon a wooden caravanserai, being led by the mysterious robed figure from the seance back in London. Bernice details how their party came to be captured once again by this robed menace, inevitably revealed to be Sheringford Holmes, whose master plan is not to conquer Riley at all, but rather Earth itself, with the help of something he hopes to find on Riley. Meanwhile, Watson and Ace discover a bloody great monster. There follows a huge theological info dump about the Great Old Ones, justifying Sheringford's actions, as he completes his transmogrification into Araxiasy. All are brought into the presence of the creature known as Azathoth, who has seemingly already possessed Ace and Watson, who were, it turns out, only bluffing. The Temple of Azathoth is borne aloft by the flying Raxasi, and they carry it towards the Vale. Back towards Earth. The Doctor works out a new set of harmonies which will throw Azathoth's chant off course and send the creature directly into the heart of the 1906 San Francisco earthquake while Holmes caves his evil brother's head in with an iron bar. Disappearing around a corner, the Doctor immediately returns with the TARDIS to take Holmes and Watson back to 1887. And now it's time to fire up the space-time visualiser and see if anybody out there wants to talk about all-consuming fire with me. I, if I cross my fingers and hope for the best, maybe I can find Tristan from Western Australia. That's where I work. So it only um, it only closed down thirty years ago. Right. It used to be the main maximum security prison for Western Australia. Now, straight away, I have a question. There's a tunnels tour. Now, a prison shouldn't have tunnels because no, that's how that's how people get out. And We've that's, all seen... that is what I was doing today. Escaping. Yeah. <laughs> they lock you in. Well, look, you know. we we are a, a difficult people. Uh, we, we're opinionated, uh, um, but we like to just be as difficult as possible. Especially, I think with with the British. So, um, by way of a segue, let's go back to. Um, I it was I've got it written down. Hang on, June of nineteen ninety four. Yes. When All Consuming Fire was published. What was happening in your life back then? Uh, so I was in year nine. So that is. Was I in year nine? No. Nine four. I was in year 11. What am I talking about? So I was 16. Right. So, second last year of high school. Um, 
What was it? Okay, so I would have had dreadlocks down to about here-ish. Oh, good. Um, uh, I was DJing on a community radio station, um, which I still oh. do occasionally. Um, and I was live DJing um, reggae for the most part. Had you had you gotten the NAs from day one? Yeah, I um, because I, I was always a, a bookie kind mm. of person. So I think the magazine had kind of paved the way, and we all knew they were coming. And I I was in our local bookshop like every day. That that um, what was it? June ninety one. Mm. Um, every day until the the books magically appeared, and they were in this big um dump bin like this you know it would hold kind of three shelves and and four rows of just loads of copies of time worm genesis and i have never since seen so many copies of a new adventure anywhere mm. uh, obviously um so they launched them with a bit of a a bit of a bang see here. i don't know that i like certainly we wouldn't have got them immediately so I had always read the Target books because, like you, I was a, quite a bookie child. But see, Doctor Who here, certainly in the eighties, was different because, you know, the thing that we always hear is, you know, for for British people, it's shown once on BBC yeah. and never again. Yeah. Whereas here in the eighties, every single day, and it was in a loop from basically um, Spearhead from Space to whatever was the current. And we were usually about a year behind. Right. Wow. So most of my memories, certainly in the mid eighties, are of mostly John Pertley and Tom Baker. I have a vivid memory of watching what I now know would have been um, the, the, oh fuck, what's it called? Uh, it's gone out of my head. The the one after Paradise Towers. Delta and the Bowman. Yeah, okay. I vividly remember seeing that and thinking, this is shit. The effects are <laughs> shit. It looks terrible. Um, and really being appalled by it. And not yeah. not knowing anything about who this Sylvester McCoy was, mm. what the Seventh Doctor looked like, because it was always really up, up to Peter Davison and that's it. So I didn't know about the new adventures um, until about 95. Because um, uh, I didn't read DWM. I think I'd seen it a few times, but it was a bit hard to get hold of here. Expensive, because obviously I was a kid, you know, I didn't have any money. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it was a magazine, not, not interested. Um, but then, yeah, in, in 95, my stepfather goes to a shop What's the latest Doctor Who book? Brings home Zampa, read it, great. Started picking them up. And then it was either 96 or 97 going to a secondhand bookshop and seeing about 20 NAs right from Time Worm, having to borrow 100 bucks off a mate. Say, I don't, cat, please. I need, <laughs> I cannot live without these. And then from there, getting everything as it came. So that's kind of that's an interesting journey going from I don't like this Sylvester McCoy business to I love the new adventures. I don't know that it wasn't. I think it was more just out of ignorance because because we had that constant diet of 
Tom and John. Yeah. Whereas Sylvester, I have a sneaking suspicion that it would have only been shown, as I say, the year after they were coming out in Britain. Yeah. And I don't think they would have really been repeated that often. Or if they were, because there were so few of them. Mm. You know? Um, Yeah. But, you know, going into the NAs then in 96 or whatever, I absolutely fell in love with Sylvester. He's great. I I love him to bits. So have you had you read it before? I have I've read it at the time it came out. I read mm-hmm. them again in about 2000. Um so this was my third time of reading it and and quite nicely spaced out. Um How how about you? Have you read it multiple I, times or? N- This would have been the second time. So I right. would have read it when I acquired it which must have probably been about 96 97. Uh, so seen. when you first read it what did you think at the time? At the time, I my memories are that I really liked it. Um, I hadn't read any Sherlock Holmes, so I couldn't quantify that against how that stands up. Yeah. Nor had I read any Lovecraft at that time either. Mm. But it was, I recall it being very readable. Yeah. It didn't bore me. Yeah. Um. And the one bit that had always stuck in my head was right at the very end, um, the, oh, you know, now we're stuck. What do we do? Oh, don't worry, I'll fix that. Yeah. And he he crosses America, crosses the Atlantic, (laughs) and then he's back within 10 seconds. Yeah, which is, um, I want to say it's probably happened, that it's a very Moffaty kind of... Yes conceit where the doctor just you know yeah goes and gets the TARDIS and then he's I kind of would like to see that adventure to be honest with you yeah and how long it actually took him I'd love to see him being derailed not not literally derailed I mean I mean let's let's assume let's assume that the doctor leaves Holmes Watson and Benny at the corner of this street and goes around the corner in the book, he then immediately reappears with the TARDIS. But if he, you know, if he actually crosses America, crosses the Atlantic, goes back to London, what are Holmes, Watson and Benny doing until he comes back in the TARDIS? Because are they just going to stand there for weeks on end? Are they going to have an adventure? Um, well, I don't know. It's a good question. But, I mean, they're out of time. So, again, one of the, the things that's quite striking is the bit where they first arrive on the the planet which has got one of those sci-fi names and i struggle to pronounce uh, relay relay something like that i'm good um and sherlock is completely out of his depth yeah he, he can't read anything and he's in shock yeah um and again i think that there wouldn't be that much in 1906 San Francisco that he would be able to relate to and that's one of the things of the book that we see how much Watson seems to be the one who's doing better because he is a man of instincts yeah is a man of learning and, and, and books I mean Holmes probably would have spent the time in a library reading about crimes that he hadn't solved or you know finding out with the benefit of 20 years 
um, you know, he'd have he'd have been revising things so he could go back to his time and solve crimes a lot quicker. So cheating. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Watson probably would have set up small medical practice. That seems to be what he does. Yeah. He'd probably have set one up on Riley if they'd let him. I reckon he would have been sued in America pretty quickly because, you know, oh, God, he's yeah. using treatments that are 20 years out of date. Yeah. And what are you doing, looking, man? They're not going to have their social security numbers. They're not going to have resident visas. They're going to they're going to have to hide out. I imagine it's a it's a nightmare scenario. But we've we've jumped way ahead. Um, so, yeah. So how did it stack up when you read it again? The first <clears throat> act, shall we say, was great. Anything in Victorian London, I'm I'm absolutely down with. Um, yeah. As soon as we get to Relay, I think it goes a little... It doesn't meet my expectations. And uh, I didn't like the characterization of Ace. Um, and I know that it was prime uh, space bitch Ace. Yeah. But she was really unpleasant in this one. Especially towards uh, Watson. Very undeserved. But she barely crops up yeah. in the story. Yeah, I, I mean, that bit I thought was quite sophisticated, the way that each companion appeared only when they were kind of relevant. And he is able to leave the Doctor with Holmes and Watson for the first kind of 200 pages. Then you bring mm. Penny in when she's important, when they go to India. And then you bring in Ace, who's been on on the planet Rayleigh um, all this time. So that bit I thought was quite sophisticated. Um I think I also, he, he like paints you. a fantastic picture of Victorian London and whether it's, you know, historically accurate, it's it's the Holmes London. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Holmes stuff. So Andy Lane, obviously, um, for anyone listening who doesn't know, went on to write, I want to say the young Sherlock Holmes adventures, but certainly a series of books about Sherlock Holmes. So clearly, I think he was... A massive Holmes fan who, when given the opportunity to write another new adventure, because obviously he co-wrote Lucifer Rising with Jim Mortimer, yeah. um, given the opportunity to write one by himself, he's obviously thought, well, I'm, I'm going to write about what I know, which is Sherlock Holmes. And like and he, you, I think he, he does that really well um, when they're in London. But And he very the, obviously knows his stuff because there are references all through the book to people from Sherlock Holmes books, even really tangential mm. people, someone that might be a reference in one Sherlock Holmes story gets yeah. fleshed out. And it's very, he seems to be taking a leaf from Kim Newman. Um, if you know Kim Newman and the, the Anno mm. Dracula books. So if I'm remembering rightly, Anno Dracula would have come out about 1992. Right. It's two years before this. And again, yeah. it's that melding of of universes, fictional worlds. Um, and this one does that as well. Possibly not as well as Anno Dracula. The Lovecraft stuff in this one seems a bit um, forced. Yeah. Yeah, mind. he's doing a lot, isn't he? He's, he's, he's trying to do a Doctor Who story, but also trying to do a Sherlock Holmes story that has this Lovecraftian slimy monster at the end. Um, 
and you know and moriarty turns up for two chapters i and i enjoyed moriarty in this i mean it's it's like people talk about fan service in doctor who and bringing back old companions for the sake of it but i mean for a for a homes fan this is just like absolute fan wank <laughs> well and this this is prime fan wank because we've got references to professor lightfoot for no other reason yep. apart from the story is set in 1887 yeah um but there's also stuff that is not uh, it doesn't preempt stuff and it's not necessarily prescient but it's very interesting that there are elements in this that have clearly been picked up by other people you've got um a reference to obviously we, we have the establishment of the, the library of saint john the beheaded where the vatican sent all of its books that it doesn't want the public to know about and in there we have stuff like love's labors one by yes. shakespeare which crops up again now andy lane after this publishes a book next year called in 95 called the empire of glass and in that we meet shakespeare who bequeaths on his deathbed a copy of love's labors one to irving braxiatel oh how lovely and irving braxiatel in 15th century 16th century london is the founder of the library of st john oh that's i didn't know that that's amazing and then Love's Labour's so cool. one, of course, then pops up again in the Shakespeare Code, which is yes. how the Tenth Doctor seals the the, the Carrionites in. But yeah. we also have references um, to obviously Lovecraft, uh, Robert Block, who was the author of Psycho. We have a reference to him uh, in there as well. I didn't spot that one. So. Um, they mentioned one of the books is dear and this is latin i'm probably killing it divermius mysterious the secret of the worm by ludwig Prinn. Oh. so that is from a short story by robert block robert block was a young correspondent and friend with lovecraft and many years oh, later robert wow. block writes psycho that's that's uh that's a very deep bit of knowledge. I'm glad I've got someone intelligent on the show this week. No, well, <laughs> intelligent is being a bit generous. But we even meet, I mean, the, the story, like, is it fan wanky, do you think, to have the, the framing device where we see at the beginning the seventh Doctor, Ace and Benny, are watching, you know, we have an appearance by the first Doctor and Susan for no reason. Yeah, I mean, it... It, it makes sense and it, it works and, and um, there are examples of that kind of thing that have slightly less justification, but I don't think it's hugely necessary. You know, anyone could have told Holmes's father about the... Whatever yeah. it was they told him, you know, oh, if you go over there on that plane and you sing a funny song, you can go to an alien world. And he's yeah, like, well, I must and, write that down and tell my children. And a lot of that, I think, is, is borrowed from Lovecraft because there, we have the plane of, of Leng, yeah. which is a setting on the planet of Relay, but the plane of Leng itself comes from um, an unpublished Lovecraft um, short story. It was, uh, he wrote it in 1927, but it wasn't published until after he died. And... On the plane of Leng, it is a a place where the the skin of the universe is thin, 
And mm. so again, Andy Lane very obviously knows his Lovecraft and knows his uh, Doyle. I mean, we even have references, obviously, to things like Professor Challenger and um, the Cyphan Society from Fu Manchu. Yeah, yeah. Is, is referenced. It's. Um, I mean, it feels a bit like Mark Gatiss had a hand in it. It's got so many references in it. Well, it makes me wonder how much of this is coming from Andy Lane and how much of this is coming from uh, whoever is in charge of the new adventures at this point in time, which I want to say is uh, Mr. Double Barrel Surname. What's his name? Oh, Darvel Evans. Peter Darvel Evans. Well, it could indeed be him. I've in my sort of head i i want to think we're into the rebecca levine era now but there would have been a lot of handover ah uh, you know what i think you're right because rebecca levine is thanked in the oh. uh, the opening so yes uh-huh. nicely done into the time lash for me <laughs> uh, yes. this is the wrong podcast Castellan Cochran will be appearing on on this show as well. He's just so desperate to be tossing people off uh, into yeah. the time lash. No, no, you can um, no, you can stop there. It's fine. <laughs> we, we know what he's like. Yes, he's he's ever so keen. Um, no. So yeah, I I think I think I'd agree with you in that the the Victorian stuff is. Uh, that's quite a stupid sentence to begin. The Victorian London stuff is marvellous, and I, I've always loved the idea of the secret library of St John the Beheaded. It's a um, great, it is a fantastic concept. The the method in which the books are stolen by Surd, um, at the time I remember thinking that was quite clever, but reading it now I just think it's a bit silly. Would you go so far as to say it's absurd? Oh, I think I think <laughs> I, would, I would, <laughs> I would give you uh, actual money to have made that joke myself. I'm going to edit this so that I make that joke. Uh, I was hoping you were going to edit that bit out altogether. <laughs> the only thing I didn't like about it was the the the, the concept that there's only one doorway in and out and it's built in such a fashion that the wind will both blow in and out of the door mm. at the same time that didn't make sense but then you have the the pneumatic tube uh which takes um Holmes and, and watson out of the library into another part of london and i did a bit of i've been actually got lots of notes here too many notes um, and the pneumatic tubes under London were real, mm. which I had no idea. The London, like the, sort of thing we'd have done, yeah. the London Pneumatic Dispatch Railway. Uh, it was a bit before this, 1863 to 1874, but it's very easy to imagine that an operative of Her Majesty, like <laughs> Mycroft, would have such a thing at his disposal. Yeah. It is nice, and it, it does kind of... It, it's a, if you've ever used the London Underground, you'll kind of have a very good understanding of what it would have felt like to be shot in a cylinder in the darkness. Being um, abused by someone. Being abused by someone. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, and then as the story moves to, I think my favourite chapter in the book is they're sailing to India, um, or Port Said, and um, I just think that 
that chapter is so well written. Not a lot happens in it. I think the doctor does something enigmatic on the deck. Holmes goes for a swim. Watson probably eats too much breakfast. He, he seems to like his food. He has but his, I morning, just think that his was... morning constitutional. Yes. And but Holmes has already a... been up. <laughs> Holmes has already swum to the Cape of Good Hope or something. Yeah. Um, but that, that, I think, was my favourite piece of writing in the book. And then, you know, yeah, the, once they go through the portal to the, the alien world of Rayleigh, um, it, the wheels just kind of come off come off of it and I found the ending kind of hard to follow even even this time one minute they're sort of the caravan they're in with Azathoth is being borne aloft by all these creatures and then they're Azathoth escaping borne aloft eighth. yes <laughs> yeah um it 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 feels quite complex as you're reading all the Victorian stuff as it's setting up the story and then on the, the voyage through um, through Egypt into India, and it feels like it's going somewhere. Um, we then get to relay, and suddenly all the complexity and the nuance of the story kind of drops out, and it's yeah. very A to B to C from that point. Yeah, onwards. It's kind um, of like survival in a way. It's just kind of you know we're, we're here in the desert, and we're, and we're all going to die. Ugh. Yeah, um, you've then got the, the the battle, and suddenly you know the the good aliens, and that really bugs me. And it was a very new adventures thing that the aliens have to have alien names that are full of apostrophes. Yeah, which are impossible to pronounce, but because they're impossible to pronounce, I tend to lose all track of them. Katar Kachukaka. Kachukugu. It's Kate's Kachukugu. And they might have been a bit too, uh, bit too shy, shy. They might. Hush, uh, hush. At, at the time, but uh, we won't say anything more about about that. But um, and then we have, of course, the. Was it obvious? Do you think? I mean, we're doing spoilers for a book that yeah. came out yeah. thirty. The, there's no point defending the sanctity of this. <laughs> the the betrayal by Sheringford. Yes. What do so, you think? So this is Sherlock Holmes's, I believe, hitherto unmentioned older brother. His who older, turns older brother. To, turns out to be the big bad. Um, I, I just... I, I, mean, I mean, yeah, but... Suddenly, you've got three Holmes brothers and their father, and the whole thing is like so intrinsically a, a Holmes story, and it's all about the Holmes family in a way that um, people moan about Moffat Doctor Who as being all about the Doctor in the same way. And I think it might have been more interesting if the baddie hadn't been another Holmes brother. I almost wonder would it have worked better and have made more of an impact if it had been Mycroft? Because mm. we know who Mycroft is. And on top of that, it gets to that kind of genre busting that Lawrence Miles does, where, hang on a minute, but surely that character appears in the future. No. You know what? He's bad. He's dead. Yeah. How how can this be? Because we know that the Holmes and Watson that appear in this book 
um, is the they are the fictional versions of the real detective and doctor who have been given cover names by Conan Doyle. Yeah. And I think because we we meet Mycroft quite early in the book, and so there's more of an emotional connection, whereas Sheringford is new specifically, I would say specifically for this story, but he was actually created, same as their father, Sigur Holmes, uh, created in 1962 for a book called Sherlock Holmes of Baker Street, A Life of the World's First Consulting Detective. This was a biography, in air quotes, written by William S. Baring Gould. So he creates Sigur Holmes. So Sigur Holmes never appears in any of the Conan Doyles. And Sheringford is also a creation of the same author. But that is, of course, one of the early names when Doyle was still working on this character of Sherlock Holmes. He originally called him uh, Sheringford Hope, mm. which is a shit name. And I'm it glad is a shit name. Yeah. He didn't go for that. No shit, Sheringford. See, it doesn't work. <laughs> no, no. It doesn't roll off the tongue. So having, so mm. with, with Sheringford therefore being almost like a new character, it doesn't have the same impacts of him being the villain that Michael no. would, would have. No, I think you're right. And also, the, the, the plot, the, 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 the evil scheme, and I've, you know, I literally finished reading it yesterday, but I'm struggling to try and remember it. So, Sheringford wants to get to Riley to meet Azathoth to come back and invade Earth. Earth with Azathoth. Azathoth. Yeah. Azathoth. Athathoth. Athathoth. We've, we've from, both turned into John Pertwee now, and I'm not from sure Spain. <laughs> Azathoth can hypnotise, essentially. Right. Oh, here comes mm. my dog. What do you want? Would you like to say hello? Absolutely. Oh, and her come tail. On, come and say hi. The tail just nudged. Rosie, come back. Oh, oh. Another Indy, nudge. calm down. It's just a dog. She's gone. Oh, Rosie's bugging off. So Azathoth can hypnotize people and the barrier between worlds is thin at that point. She's hypnotized Sheringford and who is basically working for her to bring her through to Earth by staging a fake invasion. So that's quite clever. Mm. But the subtlety and the nuance of it kind of falls by the wayside by the time we're in that third act yeah um, i find and i wonder how much of that and, and th that could be why andy lane has kept ace away from the bulk of the story because maybe by that time she's a bit boring i think so i think very boring um so i'm trying to think so when did she come back she came back in deceit in 93 no, probably two or three books ago she came back. Well, a little bit further than that. But I wonder because Benny, I mean, because he, he's written for, Andy Lane has written for Benny. Oh, I'm talking nonsense. Yeah, it would have been about a year ago. About a year before. she came back into seat, yeah. But I wonder, is he just more interested in Benny? Is Benny a more interesting character? And by that time, I think she was proving to be more popular. 
I think so. I mean, obviously she fits into the story uh, and, you you know, ace, hardened future ace, space bitch, soldier ace, doesn't belong in the same story as Watson. I mean, there's bits where I can't remember what she calls him, but for the sake oh, of argument, that, she calls him dickhead or something. That one, I no, I did take a note of that. Um, it is. Uh, where is it? Because that, I thought, felt very much like uh, dick breath dick breath and it yeah it comes from that stable of edginess of like torchwood hey kids let's say fuck that's yeah. how grown up we are yeah um and i often i was thinking as i was reading the book is that where the lovecraft elements work because for me the lovecraft stuff does not work in this book mm. Because it's Lovecraft, it's just in name only. It's just borrowed some names. Yeah. It's nothing to do with, with actual Lovecraft. But is Lovecraft, by that point, I think it was regaining some popularity. People were rediscovering it. But is it seen as a bit edgy in the same way, you know, like edgelords are into saying fuck on Torchwood and into <laughs> reading, you know, the, the, the racist works of Mr. Lovecraft? Yeah, I suppose I suppose it is a, a kind of a a literary shorthand for oh look at us we're big and clever and we've read scary books about evil, um, mm. especially and, at a time that we know. didn't have ready internet access. So a lot of these references, I think people will have heard of them at that point in '94, but they won't really have any great understanding. Um, mm. We, so you might have heard of Azathoth and the other great old ones that are mentioned. And for some reason, they develop the, that cosmology, which goes forward through the, the new adventures, where suddenly all of the entities from Doctor Who that seem to be a bit mystical. Oh, no, no, those are the versions of Lovecraft's great old ones, which for some yeah. reason have got new names in this universe, in the old universe. That one was Haster the Unspeakable, but now he's called Fenric. Yeah, which is handy. Yeah. And uh, and uh, this, this he used to be called Blehebleth, and now he's called Dave the Dalek. Um, yeah. So there's a, there's a lot of um, quite convenient relabeling going on to kind of build one of, uh, one, you know, one of ten different um, mythologies that the New Adventures was trying to develop as it went on. Um, yeah, and I just think Ace Ace doesn't fit in with Holmes and Watson. Um, no, and I think it's obvious that Andy Lane thinks that as well because she is yeah. so sidelined. I yeah. mean, she doesn't even appear in the book until around to page 230. So we get excerpts of her, whatever is her diary, her recordings. But there's yeah, only like a page here. Right. And then a... Um but yeah, whereas Bernice slots right in um, and is, you know, a character kind of who, who like, I suppose, like the Doctor and like Watson can just exist wherever she finds herself because she's emotionally alive and um, not not sort of hidebound by fact and, and knowledge and in that way. I think certainly the characters as they are in this book I think Benny can adapt to the situation, whereas Ace would rather just shoot the situation. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
but th this is the character, and it's a very different ace from what we've seen on TV. But then, then you've got the really unnecessary stuff. This is the book that introduces the concept that Ace loses her virginity yeah, to Glitz, yeah, yeah, and just no, yeah. no, oh, no. It's so wrong. I mean, if yeah. you, you know, even, even, you know, where we are now, the idea of Glitz, who would have been in his forties or fifties doing it with a 16-year-old girl on Ice World. That's quite creepy. Well, like, we also have the scene in the the bordello with the, yeah. the child prostitutes, and it yeah. has no rational bearing on the story, and all it's doing is, I, I'm assuming it's there to give us atmosphere, look yeah. how evil these bastards are, but it's very uncomfortable. Uh, really. It is. And and you think you know who is it there for? Is it is it there to excite the kind of adolescent minds who are going to be excited by mentioning that kind of thing? Is it there to kind of create or or, or add to the idea of London as a, a really alien place? That I think the quote from Benny from the back is yeah. I've been all over the universe with you, Doctor, and Earth in the nineteenth century is the most alien place I've ever seen. I think I that's mean, it, what they're going for, but it's yeah. It's also something that the New Adventures did a lot. I mean, even in Time Worm Genesis, don't we have Ace depicted naked right at her first? Yep, for no reason at all. She's just walking around the TARDIS with her clothes off. Yeah, um, and I'm assuming it's again because look, this isn't your kid. This isn't your dad's Doctor Who kids. This yep. is grown up. You're yep. grown up. This is enjoy you know, this. This is smart. If you're a 15 year old boy, marvelous. Go and you know knock yourself out as, as quite literally goes. Yeah, but um, and there are occasions in the books where you can justify it. You know, like when Ace in um, oh, Warhead, I think she has to climb inside a sort of life preserving gunk, and then she's sent around the world in in sort of stasis. Um, and that's you know that's fair enough. If she's going to get naked, then that's fair enough. But if John Peel's doing it on page one of a brand new series of books aimed at an uncertain readership, I just think that's just so creepy. And aimed at a readership, certainly at that point in 91, that would have still been your adolescents yeah. who've, who've carried on from the series. It's certainly not the sort of thing that I would want my kids, and which sounds very prudish now, well, it's um, it's it's this kind of fetish. I'm never going to be able to say the word now. Uh, fetishization of Sophie Aldred, which strikes me as being a, a really odd. You know, when you when you could use Bernice. I mean, Bernice. I want to say, never has sex. Maybe with Jason, um, but not before that. And when you when you've got a blank a blank slate. You could get all your yayas out with that character, but everyone insists on doing it with 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 Ace. Um, well, I mean, these people who fancy her. Yeah, and but I mean, this happens again in the in the missing adventures, and again, I'm thinking we see more of the sex lives of the characters, and again, that's part of the I guess the the self imposed remit, you know, stories that are too. What is it? Too, too deep, too broad. Too deep, too broad, too naked. Yeah, for the small screen because you know they can't fit the tits in on the small screen. Um, and I understand that, and I understand that they are wanting to 
grow up. Yeah. As it were. But it's a very adolescent idea of growing up. It, going back to what we were saying about Torchwood, just saying fuck doesn't make you an adult. Well, I think you're right. I mean, one of the things that inspired me to do this podcast is that, you know, I've been carrying these books around the 17 places I've lived in the last 30 years um, without really revisiting them. Um, And, you know, none of us know how long we've got. Maybe I should read them all again, since they're obviously very important to me. But um, at the same time, I was very much a a new adventure person and I was very sceptical about the EDAs. And one of the things I'm already starting to notice is that the the Virgin books are very gun and the EDAs are, I think, a lot more frock. And that that appeals to me now because I think when you're a younger fan, maybe you are more gun. Certainly if you're a child of the Eric Sayward era, you've grown up expecting oh. a certain amount of violence and let's murder. Not, let's not say the S word. Sorry, I, I apologise. That's <laughs> another word that will be cancelled and, you know, there'll be... People doing podcasts in 30 years' time going, I can't believe they used to use the S word. They used to use the S word. Yeah, and I mean, because at the time, it's funny, the the gun and frock thing has clearly passed me by. I've only heard that, I think, within the last few weeks. Uh, Um, I'm pretty sure I understand what it means. But going back to the NAs, I remember the debate was always between the the rad and the trad. Yes, that's what I hear. I would argue that all-consuming fire is much more in the trad camp with a few rad elements. And that still does not appeal to me as much as the rad books, the ones where someone says, you know what, that's been done, that's been done, let's do something with that, but something that hasn't been done. And that's where, and I know that you've already done uh, Alien Bodies, but this is where, when Lawrence Miles first appears in the NAs, you can see there's something different there. Yeah. We then, you have the end of the NAs, Terence Dix writes The Eight Doctors, which was mm, bad. <laughs> and, oh, I mean, look, you, you have Kate Orman and John Blum in there doing Vampire Science, which was fantastic. Yeah. But then Alien Bodies happens. Yeah. And that very obviously sets the template. And it makes me wonder why that that exploded the range and people started picking up on what Lawrence Miles was doing. But then there's very obviously a reaction against that later on. And I realise that I'm well and truly jumping ahead. Well, we, we, why not? Now, all-consuming fire, I think, doesn't fall into that camp. It, it does do something that's a bit more interesting with the the edges shorn off. Yeah, shall I, say. I think I think at the time when I read it, first of all, it was there. I mean, basically, the the kind of summer of '94 was like a real golden age. You had, um, and here I'm quickly going to look at the running order of the books. <laughs> you had um, Tragedy Day. All right, Legacy wasn't all that. This See, I like. I like Legacy. I'll I need that. to. I need to read it now with the with the eyes of someone who's actually seen the the other two 
Peladon stories because <laughs> at the time I, I hadn't and it was kind of out of context. Um, and then 94, you had... Oh, then there was a, a then there was St Anthony's Fire, which we we don't talk about. We don't talk about. Um, that. And then First Frontier. So it was a real um, kind of golden age of of quite big, exciting books. Um, and I think this was one of them. I just I just think that reading it again as a notional adult now, um, it it doesn't it doesn't hold together in in such a way that it's automatically a good idea to try and do a Sherlock Holmes story because as we've said a couple of times, it starts so strongly and then Holmes is just a, a sort of gulping bystander for the last 60 pages. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it, it's obvious that the doctor and Holmes can work together and we've seen it. We saw it in Talons, obviously. And obviously yeah, Holmes isn't in it, but, you know, it's it's that world. It fits, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, and it can work. And I mean, the the, the way that the book is written, uh, what would you call that? Epistolary, I, I believe. Epistolary. Epist epistemus of um. Yes. With. <laughs> well, we're all getting on a bit. <laughs> <laughs> with, with the diaries, I haven't read that much Holmes, or Conan Doyle, um, mm. so I don't know if that is. Accurate, but we know that Benny was established as a as a diary keeper. Yeah. So I'm going to assume that that works. I find the Holmes and Watson stuff with the Doctor works, but then yeah, as we say, we take them out of their world into the Doctor's world. So the Doctor being in the world of Home and Watson works. Home and Watson being transposed out of their world into the Doctor's world clearly doesn't. Mm. And there's that bit near the end where the Doctor. Or Benny, I can't remember who, but someone invites Holmes and Watson into the TARDIS as companions. And one of the um, one of the ideas behind the scenes was that Holmes and Watson would, in fact, become companions in the new adventures for a for a few books, which would have been a disaster. It, I think, it would have been dull because you would have had Sherlock Holmes. They must, they would have surely written him just, you know, he's a mopey bastard because he doesn't understand anything. Yeah. And he can't show off. Watson yeah. is pining for Benny. Yeah. Not getting anywhere. And, and then, eating a lot. You know, yeah. yeah. So Adric. He's Adric, is what you're saying. <laughs> They're both dying oh. in a oh, freighter dear. crash. And it would Terrible. have been it would have been disastrous. It would have been so, so bad. I mean, it's like trying to put the doctor in uh I'm trying to think of another like sort of contemporary genre show that might conceivably try and do a similar crossover. Um, I can't think of anything more recent than Buffy, sadly. Uh, well, I did. Sherlock jumped. jumped yeah. To mind. But yeah, I'm just I'm just trying to think if, you know, the idea of putting Holmes in, in the Doctor Who universe is the same as putting the Doctor in um uh, you know any any other fictional universe it just wh why are we doing this what's the point what well i mean you what's could, the best we can hope for i i wonder if the best we can hope for is what big finish tried a number of years back do you remember it, where they did the crossover with jago and lightfoot and jago and lightfoot end up going off with the sixth doctor for a couple of stories mm. and then they get dumped in 1965 
But I wonder if the only reason that that actually works is because those two are essentially comedy characters. And Holmes and Watson, in as they're presented in All Consuming Fire, are not. Very much so. So that's the only way. But, I mean, that would get tiresome very quickly. One book? Maybe. Yeah. But to then carry on like that, no, it wouldn't have. But they do pop up again. Holmes and Watson. Do they... They probably pop up in happy endings, I'm guessing, Uh, because everybody does. Everybody does. Yeah. Yes. But that is a story for another time. Thank you very much, Tristan. And now we're going to throw it over to the rest of the group to see what everyone else made of All Consuming Fire by Andy Lane. I enjoyed All Consuming Fire. I think it comes in amongst a very strong run of new adventures. And Doctor Who, for me, is very at home in the Victorian era. And so the predominantly Victorian setting, certainly the first two-thirds or so of the novel is very in keeping with where I feel Doctor Who fits really very well. I think one of the things that I was... I don't know that concerned is the right word, but I knew of All Consuming Fire by reputation before I'd read it. And, of course, it's quite obvious that Sherlock Holmes is on the excellent front cover. And what what I was a little bit concerned about was the fact that A potential weakness in the new adventures is that you sometimes get a number of consecutive novels that deal with similar settings, similar themes. I think of the Future History arc, for example, and you're reading quite a number of novels in quick succession where big business or a big corporation is the the, the big bad, if you like. And with Knowing that uh, Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson were in the story, I was starting to think, is this going to be another artificial universe scenario? Because Conundrum uh, by Steve Lyons hadn't been that far before all-consuming fire, if memory serves. And I thought, are we going to be back in the land of fiction? It worked brilliantly in Conundrum, but are we going to have a similar scenario in all-consuming fire? And of course, that isn't the case and the way that um, Andy Lane gets around that, I think, is is really, really quite innovative and enjoyable. Um, I don't know how far spoilers are permitted in these podcasts, but uh, certainly the idea that Holmes and Watson are actually uh, synonym uh, pseudonyms, not synonyms, uh, pseudonyms in the story for Arthur Conan Doyle himself and Rudyard Kipling. I thought that was a really, really uh, clever twist. I don't know if that's something that's well known in Holmes lore. I love Sherlock Holmes, but I'm not that well up on all of the stories and the history. But I thought that was really quite a, a clever conceit. For me, it's a five-star novel. Um, At the moment, at time of recording this, I'm 30 novels into my New Adventures marathon, and All Consuming Fire is definitely in the top five. Definitely five stars from me. I think the final third of the novel is weaker, simply because Holmes and Watson feel very out of place on an alien planet, and the, the final third didn't hold my attention as much as the Victorian stuff. 
but I did enjoy the sneaky little cameo from Moriarty, and I like the fact that it's quite ambiguous as to who Moriarty might have been uh, in terms of historical figure, if indeed that's what Andy Lane intended. But for me, All-Consuming Fire is one of the strongest novels in the range so far, and one that I would highly recommend. One of my favourite parts of All Consuming Fire is when Andy Lane incorporates aspects of the Cthulhu mythos by H.P. Lovecraft into the universe of Doctor Who. I'm a big horror buff. After Doctor Who, horror is my greatest passion. I'm not as into weird fiction, though, which is probably why I don't know Lovecraft as well as I would like to. But what I thought was really clever was the way in which there's this section where the Doctor details how the Great Old Ones have crossed his path uh, in previous adventures. And I do really like the idea of villains such as the Animus, uh, the Great Intelligence, and Fenric all being part of the, the these great old ones who have, you know, come from a long dead universe into our universe. And I really quite like the way that uh, Andy Lane has done that. So for me, uh, the work of H.P. Lovecraft is now very much canon in the world of Doctor Who. Really nice touch that, I thought. I quite agree. But let's see what Liam made of it. The first thing I could say about All-Consuming Fire is that it's a great novel. The second thing I'll say about All-Consuming Fire is it's not a Doctor Who novel. Rather, let me explain. This story is mostly presented in the journal extract from Dr. John Watson. Now, being so minded when I say that Andy Lane, who I consider to be one of the unsung heroes of the VNA range has delivered a book here that literally plays like a missing Conan Doyle novel. It's astounding. Its grasp of the characters of Holmes and Watson, and more so the language of the world that's presented to them, is something that literally could be coming straight out of the Strand newspaper of 1880s. What we have here is a book that is presented in the literary style, endeavours and foreknowledge of Conan Doyle, liberally sprinkled with, and if you pardon the pun here, the real McCoy. The first scene, and I'm not going to spoil it to you, when Sherlock Holmes meets the Doctor is an absolute gem. You can actually physically see it being played out. Now, bear in mind, you know, I grew up in the early 1990s, so my Sherlock Holmes, in many ways, was Jeremy Brett. You know, I have vivid memories of watching the Granada productions of Hound of the Baskervilles, uh, The Final Problem, and my personal favourite, The Last Vampire, which uh, Mark Gatiss has acknowledged is a, is a direct debt on some of the Sherlock stories we saw with Benedict Cumberbatch, but we digress. So, to see that played out with the Sylvester McCoy Doctor and introduced into his world in as way as anarchic and I'm going to go for the world and say uh, effervescent as you would have expected from the Seventh Doctor. It plays out absolutely beautifully. The bafflement, the bewilderment is played just right on behalf of Bernie Summerfield and Ace's parts. And of course, there is an acknowledgement at the end that Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson were not the real names of the detectives. In fact, I can exclusively tell you that the real names were... Oh, hang on. No, sorry. Somebody's at the door. I gotta go. Cheers. Bye. A firm advocate of the policy of always leaving the audience wanting more. Let's hear from Kevin. 
Okay, so my first time reading a New Adventures novel in 30 years, and thanks to the fact that our podcast overlords chosen a different selection system, we're not reading them in publication order. This is going to be interesting. Anyway, All Consuming Fire is a great book to start with, as it contains two of my favourite things, Doctor Who and Sherlock Holmes. Author Andy Lane clearly knows his Holmes history and peppers the books with references to past cases, and a bit of Googling reveals that he's written a whole series of young Sherlock novels, so clearly he's a fan. I also like the mention of characters from the Sax Roma Fu Manchu novels and Professor Challenger from Conan Doyle's own Lost World. I especially enjoyed the use of long-hidden brother Sheringford Holmes. The name really only appeared in Conan Doyle's notes as a possible alternative to Sherlock and a fictional biography of Holmes in the 1960s. But it's a name that's been used by loads of authors since, of course. In fact, the whole conceit that's used here about Holmes and Watson being real people and the names being pseudonyms to protect their identities has been around for nearly 100 years. And some fans refer to it as the great game. It's a fun idea and, and, and many have played with it, obviously. As a youngster, I personally always liked author Philip Jose Farmer's Wild Newton universe, where everyone from Tarzan and Doc Savage to Holmes, Alan Quatermain, The Shadow and Philip Marlowe are descended from the same families that are affected by a falling meteorite. The other bit of the plot I found really interesting was the use of spontaneous human combustion. Now, now back in the 70s and 80s, there was a huge interest in the paranormal and things like Bigfoot and the Bermuda Triangle and ESP and, of course, UFOs. And I guess this all peaked in the UK in 81 with the TV show Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World and the publication of The Unexplained, which was a weekly part work magazine about all things spooky and weird. Um, You know, I bought this, I lapped it up, I bought every issue. I I still had them all in binders 40 years later. And there were a number of pieces within the magazine about spontaneous human combustion. And as a gruesomely fascinated 13-year-old, I read these avidly. You know, they're pictures of charred remains and stumps of legs and oddly untouched rooms. So much so that when we had to do a three-minute piece on our favourite subject in front of the English cast at school, while others talked about football teams or pets or TV shows, you guessed it, I chose spontaneous human combustion. And I diligently memorised my three-minute speech and held up pictures from the magazine to illustrate my points to looks of incredulity from my classmates and my teacher. I'm really not sure what they made of it. It definitely wouldn't be allowed nowadays. Anyway, back to the book. Favourite scenes or lines? Well, I did like the Doctor clearly getting his third incarnation kicked out of the Diogenes Club for breaking the no-talking rule, and Benny and the Doctor greeting each other by performing tricks with bits of our anatomy. And who couldn't like the Baron snarling to Watson? You will pay in coins of agony. I also noticed that Andy Lane gets Holmes to mimic the Grouch remarks line, I refuse to join any club that would have me as a member. As a Marx Brothers fan, that made me smile. All in all then, pretty good book to start my new adventures journey. On to the next one. Well, who knew we had so many Holmes and Watson fans in the group? Was that, David? I'm going to begin my first ever contribution to one of this podcast's afterwards with a confession. And that confession is, despite my love of Doctor Who, of British literature, of British art, of British pop culture, despite my love of all of those, I don't love Sherlock Holmes. In fact, I quite dislike Sherlock Holmes. I find the character pretentious and tedious, and I cringe and roll my eyes every time he does one of his magical deductions. Look over there, Watson. That man has got a drop of water on his boot. I therefore deduce that he is married to a dolphin trainer. Absolutely tedious stuff. I therefore don't love the first two-thirds of this book. 
It's absolutely very well written. And the story is strong enough to keep me going. There is a decent adventure happening in here, but the focus on Holmes doesn't really work for me. However, I do enjoy that both the Doctor and Benny, one of the greatest companions in Who, I've got to say, do start to call Holmes out for some of his more improbable deductions. And that, that's quite good. But I love the last third of this book. The Virgin books are at their best when they're properly using the full imagination that the book format allows, unencumbered by budget, you can create a world like they create here, properly alien, properly different, conceptually interesting, with alien aliens all around it. Lane is one of the best at writing for the Seventh Doctor, and captures the magic of that Doctor really, really well, better than so, so many people in the New Adventures. Bernice, underused, but he's strong when she's used. The writing's good, and all of that means that I enjoy this book, despite the use of Holmes, despite the fact that the ending is a little bit lacking in spark, and despite the fact that the big bad actually turns out to be a bit of a nothing burger. Well written, solid adventure, great alien world, great doctor, not that excited by the main character, not a great ending, it's a solid B from me. Well, I suppose that wraps up our investigation. I've got my books back. Just put this back on the shelf. Lovely. We'll say no more about the theft. What we will say, Andy Lane, if you're listening, on the whole, this is a bloody good book. And next month, join us as we dip into a strange new form of time travel in Anacrophobia by Jonathan Morris. See you then. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.